Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. All right, let's uh, finish the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 4, please. Uh, I, uh, when you're reading a good book and you get to know the characters in it and they become friends, sometimes dear friends, one of the experiences you might have when you're getting to the end of a book like that is sadness because you won't be able to be with your friends anymore and you get to enjoying that. So we're coming now to the end of this story. I feel something like that. And so if you're reading the Lord of the Rings, you might be sad that you're not going to be around Gandalf anymore or Frodo or whatever, or Pilgrim's Progress or whatever. And so same way about Ruth. All right. At the end of Ruth, we see God bringing everything together very delightfully, wonderfully. Now, The book of Ruth exists, again, for a few reasons. The the main reason it exists is the end of chapter 4. To show the line of King David, which ultimately is the line of the promised Savior. This is what the entire Bible is all about. And this delightful, true story is how God brought about our salvation. That's what this book is for. So it's a delight in that. Second... He gave it, as we read in Romans 15, 4, that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And so Ruth connects with us because many of our lives go through difficult, painful periods of darkness and difficulty and loss and sorrow. And Ruth was written to give you hope that God is the God who saves. God is the God who can be trusted God is the God who brings us from rags to riches. God is the God who, though you in this world will have trouble, take Nardi, take Hardy has conquered the world. Take Hardy is building for us an eternal kingdom. So Ruth is meant to be a great help to your soul, and I hope it has, and I hope this last chapter will be. The way that I've gone about preaching this is we read the text, I then walk through that chapter hopefully drawing out a few helpful things, lessons along the way, and then I take a specific application or two, and that's what we're going to do. So we'll look at chapter 4, two places it takes part in, the city gate when Naomi and Ruth's fate is uh, determined, and then this delightful scene of repose where Naomi is holding her grandson. So we'll look at that, and then I want two applications. I want you to think of Ruth, this writing as a book of art. Not, not painter pictures, but like it's artistic, it's beautiful. And what can we learn from Ruth and how you should take in media? I know that sounds like a strange application, but I think it'll be helpful. And then we'll look at the Redeemer. That'll be our closing applications. So let me read Ruth chapter 4, pray, and then we'll review what's happening here. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. 
So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malam. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people were at the gate, and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than ten or then seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you that you have preserved your word for us. Please have mercy on us now that we might have hearts and minds opened and humble before it, that our lives might be lived in faith and so pleasing to you. Please keep us from being hearers only and not doers and so deceive ourselves. Make us a people hungry for your word and grateful when you feed us. Amen. So, This finishes what we left off last week. Ruth listened to her mother-in-law, went to Boaz. Boaz said he would redeem, but that there was a closer relative who had first rights. And so we were left with something of a cliffhanger. What's going to happen? The last words in chapter 3 are, Wait, Ruth said to Naomi, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he setters the matter today. And he did. He's on a mission. And so when we turn to chapter 4, he had gone immediately up to the gate and sat down there. Now think of the city gate uh, as the town square, because it was. Even though it wasn't in the middle of the town, it was kind of the place of all legal and all commerce. 
All administrative, legal things happened there. And it was a place of commerce. It was a a place where everyone gathered and a place where anybody was going to leave the city to go work in the fields would have to go through or re-enter. And so Boaz went to the place that he thought he would be able to most quickly find out this closer redeemer. And God blessed it, didn't he? So we see again God's providence that when Boaz sat down, the language is almost like, and there he was. This uh, closer kinsman was there. And so God is blessing it. And what follows, I, I smile because... Boaz is doing what's right. He is careful to follow the law and the custom. And yet the way he goes about it is um, he's not being underhanded. He's not being sneaky, but he's being very shrewd. He presents the information in such a way as to make the desired outcome very, very probable. And so we'll see that. It's kind of a delight. So you can learn from Boaz. We need to be as innocent as doves and shrewd as snakes. And Boaz is just like that. All right, so the other redeemer is never named. We don't know the name of this other man, and we don't know why he's not named. It could be to protect his relatives because he made kind of a dumb decision here. Uh, It could be because he forwent his duty And so he's not even given the dignity of being named. For whatever reason, he's not named. And so the way that Boaz refers them, we see Boaz as kind of a a man of some authority and weight. You'll notice when he speaks to the man, the man listens to him immediately. Sit down here. And he sits down. And then to 10 elders, he says, sit down here. And they sit down. So Boaz is a matter of, uh, a man of some... um, weight, some importance. And the way that he refers to the man is basically like we would say, hey, you, hey, so-and-so. That's how he's referring to this man, and the man listens. So Boaz has a high reputation. So this is how matters were decided. These elders who sit there aren't judges. They're not listening to both sides of it and going to give a judgment. Rather, they're more witnesses. They're witnesses who make sure that things are handled rightly And they're witnesses because they didn't have a county registrar of deeds like we do where something was written down and kept. These men would be men who would go to if something was in dispute to say, did this happen? So that's what they were there for. Their their presence is a witness. And so Boaz informed this near relative. Let's say he's a first cousin and Boaz is a second cousin. We don't know exactly what he is, but Naomi is selling. Now that could also read Naomi has already sold. We're not really sure. The language could be either. But either way, Naomi is selling this land, and if you remember, there was a law of love in the land of Israel to take care of widows and to take care of the family land so it wouldn't go outside of the family and ultimately outside of the tribe so that the descendants wouldn't be left destitute. So Naomi's a widow. She's without husband. She's without son. And so it fell to the duty of this first cousin to buy the land, to keep it in the family so that the family could be fed, and to take care of Naomi. So that's what Boaz is explaining to the man. And the man said, I will redeem it. Now this isn't a signature yet on the deed, but this is his declaration of his intent. But you'll notice Boaz hasn't given him all of the information. And Boaz has some understanding that the rest of the information will make it unlikely that the man will want to actually do as he say he'll do. And so Boaz has kept in reserve that information that would disincline the man to do it. So maybe he's helping the man save some face here. 
Because the man could say, yeah, I'd be willing, but oh, geez, this is too much for me. And so Boaz drops the bomb that the day that you buy the land, you'll have to marry Ruth in order to keep the family name going. And the man immediately backs out. I cannot redeem lest I impair my own inheritance. What does that mean? Well, what it would likely mean is that this man would buy the land. He'd have to pay the purchase price. He would have to take care of Naomi out of the proceeds from that land. He'd have to take care of Ruth. He'd have to take care of any children born to Ruth. But those children, though, he'd have to raise them as his own, weren't his own. They would bear the name of uh, Malon, of Elimelech. And then when that child or those children came of age, they would take the land for their own and that guy would be out. So basically the man would have all of the investment with no profit. It's a high cost. And the man is unwilling to do it because he maybe couldn't cover it. It would be too detrimental. And so he's not presented here as any kind of a villain. He's not even presented as doing really anything wrong. He, he's doing what would be normal. This is what you and I would likely do. It's too high of a cost. What about my wife and my children? I, I imperil their future if I do this for them. And so he's presented as just doing what would ordinarily be done in order to contrast how extraordinary Boaz's faithful and loyalty and love is. Boaz is doing what's extraordinary. Boaz is taking a pretty significant leap of faith in investing himself and his finances and his future in taking care of Naomi and Ruth and their children in this land. This is one of the central themes in this book, hesed, loyal love, sacrificial love. And Boaz in scripture is held high as a man of deep faith, who gives of himself sacrificially in loyal love to others, particularly those who are vulnerable. And so this is what we want to be, because that's what it means to be a Christian, right? We sacrifice, we give, we lay down our pride, we'd rather suffer wrong than wrong another. This is, of course, Christ. Remember, Boaz is a type of Christ. He's a picture of Christ. He's a foreshadow of the kind of love we'll receive from God in the coming of Christ. That's the kind of redeemer he is. I want to close with that, but Christ is our redeemer. He's not just the example of a redeemer, but because he's that kind of a redeemer who lays down his own life for those who are infinitely less than him because of love for them, this is to be the mark of a Christian. Don't believe the lie that you can live a sacrificeless Christianity. That you can say you love Jesus, but it doesn't affect your life at all. That's a lie. You are called to take up your cross and deny him. Husbands, this means that you are to set aside projects to do the projects that your wife is asking you to do. Because it seems like you have time to get your stuff done. To make sure that your hobbies are done. Well, the things she's asking you to do aren't done. That's why we sacrifice. Wives. You are to sacrifice yourself for your husband and give yourself to him and not withhold yourself because you're too tired or too under the weather or whatever. You are to give yourself to him because we are Christians who sacrifice. This is the essence. Children, you are to set aside the way you would like to do things for the sake of the way your parents want them done because 
as Christians, we sacrifice friends. You are to give the sacrifice of friendship with the time that it takes to invest in a friendship. Because that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what Boaz does. And so Boaz, hearing that the man will not redeem it, follows through on his pledge to Ruth. Remember, in chapter 3, he had said, there is a nearer relative, a first cousin, if you will, and if he does not do it, I will. I will redeem you. I will marry you. And now he's following through on it. And as I noted in the time of confession, he does it right away. It's a good way to live our lives, following through on our word right away. In spite of the cost, out of sincere love, he is willing to pay the price. And he does. Now the offering of the sandal, I don't know. That's how they did it. I wish I could be more helpful. The language isn't even clear who's, who takes off his sandal and gives it to whom. The ESV makes it clear, but in the original, it's not clear if the other dude is giving his sandal to Boaz or Boaz is giving his sandal to the unnamed guy. But that's the way that they said the deal is done. Signed, hand shook. It's, this is a deal deal. This isn't just an, in, an intent to do the deal. The deal is done. Now, one thing I read is said that a sandal would symbolize one man taking his foot off the land, the guy giving the sandal, and the other guy putting his foot on the land. I don't know. The deal's done. And Boaz calls all of the witnesses to be witnesses. So he gets very technical here. You are witnesses, and they all say, we are witnesses. The deal is done. We see this in marriage. Before God and before these witnesses, you pledge to love one another until death does part you. So we get this language. That's what's happening here. And what flows from this act of loyal, sacrificial love is blessing upon blessing. It's really something what follows here. You'll notice that everybody says, may you be like, may the woman, may Ruth be like Rachel and Leah. Well, who are Rachel and Leah? Kids, remember? Who are Rachel and Leah? Who are they? Go ahead. Yeah, and who, how many children did they have between them and a few other women with them? But how many children do you remember? Oh, geez. I asked the right guy. I wouldn't even have known that. Yeah. Yeah, so how many total? Twelve. Way to go, Liam. All right. Are you smarter than a fourth grader? No, none of you are. All right. Uh, so what they're saying is the two women, the matriarchs of the nation of Israel, may Ruth be like them. May the children you give her be prominent and radically important in this nation. And then Perez is named. And may your house be like the house of Perez. Who's Perez? Liam, do you know that one? Yeah, right. Perez is the son of Judah. So remember, this is the line of Judah. This is the line that was prophesied, promised, would bear the king. David, who would bear the king of kings. This is the royal line in Israel. And Perez is the son of Judah by his daughter-in-law, Tamar, if you remember that situation. Tamar's husband died. One of uh, Judah's sons 
married her as was right, but refused to give her children. And he was put to death. I think his second son was put to death. And then Judah refused to give any more sons because he's thinking they would get put to death. And so she dresses a prostitute. Judah bought her for a night and she was impregnated. And the son born of her was Perez, the forefather of the line of the kings of Judah. Isn't it something how God works? This is how God's keeping his promise. And so that is named. So Ruth, we want you to be like the founders of the nation of Israel. And Ruth, we want you to be blessed like the founders of the line of the royal kings of Israel, Perez. What a blessing. Now don't forget, when Naomi returned from Moab, what, did she, what was she greeted with by all the women? Whispers. The whole town was uh, stirred because of them in 119. And the woman said, is this Naomi? They're whispering about her. And now they're blessing her with the biggest blessings you could be blessed with. And so they all realize God is doing something special here. Whatever's happening here is going to be remembered for a long time. And they bless her with that high blessing. And so Boaz marries Ruth, and they are given the blessing of a son. So note that again. <laughs> When's the last time we watched a movie or read a book where the, the culmination of all things is the gift of a child? <laughs> we hate children in our day now. And yet here it is. The blessing of blessings at the end of this book is a son, a child. Right? Children are a reward. They're a gift. We need to be different than the world, brothers and sisters. We need to love children. So parents, this is a great reminder again. Beware of being distracted from your primary work. Beware of not viewing your children as the blessing and privilege they are. Fathers, when you return home for the day, prioritize your children. The only way that you'll ever have quality time with them is in quantity. The real impactful things that happen with your children happen because you're just there with them a lot. They're not a distraction. They're not an obstacle to what you want to do. They are the thing, the primary thing that God has given you to do. Now, in saying that, I don't mean that children should run your household. You should run their lives. They should submit to your wishes but you should prioritize time with them. And so the story ends with Naomi holding her grandson in her arms. Remember, she said, I have returned empty. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. The Lord is against me. I am empty. And now she's full. She's satisfied. Emptiness to fullness, emptiness to fullness, emptiness to fullness. That's our God. We see that right away in creation. world is formless and void, and God filled it full with everything. Everything you see in creation, God filled it full. This is our God. He is not a fruitless God. He's not a gay God. He's a fruitful God. He's generous. You saw it. We broke the record for snowfall. Why are you grumbling? He's generous. Didn't you see his generosity this winter? 
Quit grumbling. Thank him. Praise him. He's a generous God. What joy. And then, of course, what we're hearing here, what we're getting a taste of is the generosity of God. He didn't spare his only son. That's the height of his generosity. This is just an appetizer. Isn't this a wonderful story? To know that we have a God like this. But the height of it is yet coming. This is just a little blip. The big one's coming. And so, brothers and sisters, can God get you to heaven? Can God defeat the sin that you don't think can be defeated? Are you excusing your sin by saying, I just can't do it? Well, Jesus has been raised from the dead. You aren't a victim. You're a conqueror. Is your relationship that you think is too sour to get sweet anymore? Isn't God your God who didn't spare his only son? You think your child is too far gone or your relative or your dear friend who has turned away from Christ and you've given up hope. Why? Look at this God. And then as if that's not enough, we have this very sweet ending of this genealogy. And I know a genealogy is, you might think, boring. and, But here it is connected. As if this story itself isn't enough. You remember back in the day, uh, what was that guy's name? And now the rest of the story. Paul Harvey. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, like he tells a wonderful story, but the real wonder of it isn't yet come. And he's going to tell you the rest of it. That's what's happened here. What a wonderful story, but you don't know the half of it. That's King David's grandma. That Boaz guy, that's King David's grandpa. What a, wow, look at how God works. And then all the way to Jesus Christ. All right, so that's the story. Wonderful, huh? Glory to God. Okay. I want you to learn from this book how you should view what you take into your life. When I say the word art, what do you think of? I mean, not the name art, like as a man, but art, artist, artistic. What do you think of? Painting, drawings. That's one kind of art. What I want you to think of is generally the creative way that people communicate how they view the world to others. And so art can be a drawing, a painting, a sculpture, music, a play, a skit, a movie, a TV show, art. Ruth is art. This is the inspired Holy Word of God, but this is a work of literature, which is a form of art. It's the way that you convey truth artistically to, to others. Some of you are very skilled at this. You know, we kind of have these personality types. You have the artistic personality types and maybe more the scientific black and white personality types. And sometimes they struggle to get along well. If you've ever been around the artistic type, they seem to view the world and how things work rather differently. I don't know where I'm going with that. It doesn't matter. Put that aside. That was a total, I don't know why. Um, But view Ruth as a work of literature, a work of art. And it's a good one. And what, what makes it a good one? What criteria, if you were reading Ruth the first time and you sat back and wanted to reflect on it and kind of, like not just 
take a bite of it and walk away, but actually engage it. And you wanted to gather some friends with a glass of wine and talk about the art of Ruth. And you wanted to defend why is Ruth good art, good literature? What, would you, what criteria would you use? This week I listened to a few, two podcasts on this subject and it uh, explained what I explained two sermons ago in a, in a really helpful way to get a handle on this. You remember a couple of weeks ago in Ruth, I was talking about this law of love and how all of God's law reflects who God is and what God loves and what God values. You remember that? And I said, in this law of a kinsman and redeemer, we see God's love for family, God's love for children, God's love for taking care of the vulnerable, the widow, God's love for men being men and men and women being women. Remember that? God's law is revealing what God values and loves. And, and, and I want you to think like that regarding media, art, anything you take into your life. You know what happens. You remember when you were a kid and you were listening to music that your parents didn't approve of. What did you say in defense of why you could listen to it, if you're honest? Well, I don't really listen to the lyrics. Because what you're saying there is, well, it really doesn't have any impact on me. And you know that's a lie, right? Everything we take in is impactful in some way to us. It's teaching, instructing you. It's forming the way you view the world even. Right? This is particularly true of art. That's the function of art. To inform the way you view the world. And so how does Ruth do that? Well, well let me think of two categories. One is, is the art good art? Is it well done? Is it excellent? Second, does it help you view the world as God views it and love what God loves and hate what God hates? Is it pleasing to the Father in its content? So Ruth is excellently done. The way it's written is really well-written literature. It's high literature. It's good art. And so you don't, you probably recognize we don't live in a world of beauty anymore where people want to do beautiful things anymore, do we? The art is grotesque. Movies are trash. I mean, they're just not even good story anymore. They're cramming things down your throat that aren't well-written, well-acted, well-done. Music, same thing, cheaply made. Not all of it, some of it. And so as Christians, one of the things you gotta, we have to learn, relearn, I'm not, I, I don't want us to be snobbish, but what makes it good art? What makes it beautiful art? But that's one thing. That's not my area of expertise. I, I'm not good in that area. But the other is, is the art, is the music, is the media, the movie, the YouTube video, the play, whatever, is it teaching you to love what God loves and hate what God hates? Is the is what it's doing in you, what it's eliciting from you, helping you to be more like God and the, the heart it brings out of you? So for instance, there are movies that have like real good and real evil. But the way that it's put together is it's actually teaching you to be sympathetic to the evil. It's putting the villain forward in a sympathetic way so that your heart is drawn towards the villain you to, does God love that? Or it's 
teaching you to love sexual immorality. This is one of the opposites in Ruth, isn't it? Even the sex scene in Ruth, did you notice that there's a sex scene in Ruth? A marriage scene, a bed scene. And look at how delicately it does it. And he went into her. Very delicate. No visuals, no voyeurism, no flesh. But the beauty of the marriage bed, right there. It's teaching us how to view the marriage bed, how to love what God loves, and but how to do it modestly. And you know, how about the movie you watched last night and the sex scene? Was it so modest? Was it teaching you to love the modesty with which God loves and also the dignity and value of the marriage bed or the novel you're reading? Or the YouTube video, or the music that you're listening to? Is it teaching you to be more like God in it? Because that should be the one question that we as Christians care more about than any other. Is it pleasing to my Father? Does it help me to love what my Father loves and hate what my Father hates? Is it teaching me to be more godly or to get my heart bound up with that which is totally displeasing to my Father? And we see this in Ruth. You read this book and not only is it really good literature, but it teaches your heart to love and to feel love for what God loves. One of the outcomes of Ruth is we should have much more care for widows, shouldn't we? Why? Because God loves the widow and the orphan. This is discipling your heart to love and to takes teaching action on behalf, right? It's teaching you to hate sexual immorality because of how careful Ruth and Boaz are to guard themselves in purity. It's teaching men that it's a good thing to be a man. It's a good thing to take sacrificial responsibility for others. It's teaching women it's a good thing to be a woman and to need the help of a man. It's teaching you to love what God loves. So as you view art, as you view media and take them in, we must outgrow the childishness of just saying to yourselves, it doesn't have any impact on me. It's just a movie. It's no big deal. That sex scene isn't real. The using of Jesus' name flippantly isn't real. I mean, the carnage and the bloodshed and the death aren't real. Doesn't, don't our movies teach us to love death? and to love murder, and to love bloodshed? Doesn't your heart get drawn to loving those things by watching them? Doesn't God hate death and the death of the innocent in particular? So that's, I think, a helpful application to the book of Ruth. Second, I've already mentioned it, Boaz is a redeemer. And this is always portrayed in our art. There's always a redeemer There's always one who is set up to be the rescuer. That's because all art can't help but mimic God's art. It's foreshadowing Jesus. But here, Boaz is foreshadowing Jesus. The lengths he goes to to care for those in desperate need of help. And what lengths did Jesus Christ go to? He didn't spare, uh, Boaz didn't spare himself at all. He was up all night 
And first thing in the morning, he went and dealt with their redemption. Jesus didn't spare himself being born of a virgin, entering into this world as a child, subjecting himself to everything that we are subjected to. Though he is the eternal, holy, all-wise, all-perfect, all-powerful God, he became just like you and I in order to redeem us in our greatest need. And what is your greatest need? It's your sin. It's our sin. And Christ did it. And in, in redeeming us, he had to suffer the wrath of God against him for our sin. That's what he subjected himself to. That was the price. Redemption always deals with a price to be paid. In this case, the price was the purchase of a field and the raising up of children and taking care of them. In Christ, it was the price of the wrath of God upon him for our sin. Do you know that God is a God who hates sin? He hates it with a holy hatred. He hates your sin. He hates it. it it's despicable in his sight. Attitude. I mean, he hates God who made us because it's so, so, so full of ingratitude. God who made us, the God who gives us everything, and we respond in faithless, stubborn, selfish disobedience, and he hates it. And all of that hatred was poured out on his son in our place, and the son willingly suffered it in order that he might redeem us, might redeem you. Why? Why did he do it? Well, there's a couple answers to that. One is for the glory of his father. He loved his father's glory more than his own comfort. Another is love for us, for his church, for those that the father gave to save, gave him to save. He did it in nothing but eternal love for us. And so just as we see Naomi and all rejoicing with this birth, how much more can't we rejoice in Jesus Christ? who redeemed us, suffering the wrath of God, forsaking all the beauties and glories of heaven to become like us, to die in our place for our sin, that we might have eternal redemption. Isn't that a delight? What greater thing do you need in this world but that knowledge? And so do you know him? Do you know him? I'm not saying that only as an evangelistic plea to those of you who have yet to come to Christ, but as a believer, are you taking pains to know him more? To learn the truth in the scripture that tells us what he did on the cross, what he's like, what it cost him. Are you reading scripture to know Jesus more? Are you coming here attentive to learn more about Jesus? Do you love him? Are you seeking to know him more? Right, and then... Are you making sure to keep everything out of your life that will keep you from knowing him more? I mean, what has your heart? What do you love? Do you love him? Look at what he gave for us. Look at how wonderful and amazing he is. Let's love him. Let me pray. Father, help us to love your son, as we see in the book of Ruth, but also to love you who is so generous in providing for us in our every need. And so, God, teach us to trust you and to trust you enough to have the faith to obey you. 
God, help us to apply this carefully in our lives, that we might become more like you, and that we might learn to love those things that you love and hate what you hate, to keep those things in our lives which will be beneficial towards us knowing and loving your son more, and to refuse and deny ourselves those things that would not. And so, God, please help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so two charges. The first is, do see, have faith that the Son of God does redeem. And I know we mean that ultimately, and that he will fully and finally redeem us and bring us to dwell forever with his Father. But I also mean in our daily lives, he does redeem, he does fix, he does repair, have hope. Second then, all of that, where in your life are you captive enslaved, controlled by your hungers, your desires, your lusts, such that you are involved in things that are not pleasing to our Redeemer. So the charge is ask God specifically there for his redemption, for his help. Get specific. Like plead with him. Look at how Naomi, look at how Ruth pled with God for his help and how he helped. And so plead with God there. Cry out to him for his redeeming help. Then take action in faith and put it to death. May you have the faith to see the generosity of God and so be generous with others, not reluctantly or begrudgingly, but gladly, which God loves. May the God who is able to make all grace abound to you, make it such that you have all sufficiency in all things at all times in order that you might abound in every good work. May the God who supplies both seed and bread supply and multiply you for sowing and increase your harvest and righteousness in your life so that you may be enriched in every way to be generous in every way so that through you and through us will be produced abundant thanksgiving to God. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord and I love you.